good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning dealing with the second plague. Um, it is perhaps one of the most interesting plagues, primarily because the vast majority of us will read of the concept of a plague of frogs and think then in light of that, that this one would not have been uniquely severe. But I'm here to tell you today that after after much examination, you are looking at one of the most disruptive and harmful plagues that takes place in the land of Egypt, that these frogs would have ultimately done an obscene amount of destruction and damage, and yet again, the power and authority of God would have been made uniquely manifest. But one of the things that we must understand as we're walking through the plagues is there are always really two things happening, or perhaps even more than that. And the two things that I really want to bring to light this morning is not only the fact that God is judging judging the nation of Egypt, but he is also identifying the reasons for his judgment. Last week, as we looked at the the water, the Nile being turned to blood, Blake made the very clear application that this blood is an indication of what sin has merited, that sin merits death. And as you see in this narrative, the frogs will begin to make their way from what I'm convinced to still be a rather bloody Nile, making their way into the land of Egypt, proclaiming something loudly. One major proclamation is that this whole land is unclean. With that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter eight, starting in verse one, and we'll make our way through verse 15. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Exodus chapter eight, starting in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into, into, into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and for your houses to be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this day 
being reminded of the severity of your wrath. And Lord, even in the light of the severity of your wrath, we also see a sweetness of your mercy. Lord, that you would even relent, that you would give respite so as to proclaim to Pharaoh who you were, that you were the God of judgment, but you were also the God of mercy and grace. And so, Father, would you, as we make our way into this section, would you communicate to us all the truths that are captured within? Lord, would you help us to understand all the more deeply the the callousness and the uncleanness of the land of Egypt? And Father, may it be a proclamation to us as well that apart from the finished work of Christ, we would be unclean and a stench to your nostrils. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What I'd like to do is really walk through the narrative, the motions, and make a couple of key observations as we walk through the narrative. And then what I'd like to do is ask the question, and it's an important question, which is why frogs? Um, As you read through this narrative, I think there is a necessary question that really it seems as though the vast majority of the plagues make some sense. Flies and gnats and biting insects and locusts, these small insects that would cause such devastation. I think in general, one of the primary questions that we need to ask is why in the world would God choose to plague the land with frogs? And we will find, I think, a clear answer in the pages of the New Testament. And so what I'd like to do first is walk through the narrative here. And there's really five major movements. And starting with a simple epilogue, a very important epilogue. If you look at Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, 25, you really get the setting of the second plague. So it says this in verse 25, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him. And so before we dive into the second plague, it's important for us to remember that we are only seven days after the water of the Nile was turned to blood. Now, the severity of that plague, I think, was made really clear last week. The idea that the entirety of all of the waters of Egypt were turned to blood is a proclamation to them of the judgment of God upon them for their sin, for their trespass, and their iniquity, and I think appropriately in regard to the killing of the sons of Israel. That it's a proclamation that God has not forgotten, that the sin that you have committed, there will be recompense for it. And so the entirety of the land is covered with blood. And so if we make our way into this second week, you will have to consider a couple things as Moses is making his way into Pharaoh's court. First, the people of Egypt are still reeling from the reality that every single ounce of their water, even that in their jars, has been turned to blood. The people are not recovered, if you will, from this very, very destructive plague. The people are still reeling from such a plague. The land itself is still marked by bloody foam upon the shores of the Nile. I mean, we think about just the basic imagery of this. There would not be anywhere you could go without the sight of blood. And not just its sight, but let's consider the smell for just a moment. And I know that may seem like a bit much, but I think the gratuitous nature of this is quite important. That everywhere they went, everywhere in Egypt, it would stink of both dead fish and the iron from the blood. That everywhere they went, it was, it was inescapable, the foul odor of, of that very plague, that the stench of iron and dead fish is wafting through the air, that the land is still marked by bloody foam upon the shores of the Nile. I imagine that even as they were tipping out their vessels of wood and vessels of clay to pour out the blood, they have to lead themselves with a simple question of how do we clean blood from this without water? that they would have been totally amiss. It would have been an impossibility to remove all of the blood in a quick fashion. Basically to say this, in seven days, the land is still bloodstained. And not only is it bloodstained, the land is marked with holes. 
And the reason it's marked with holes is because people would begin to dig to make makeshift wells so that they could find perhaps some water that they wouldn't perish for lack of water. And so they would dig in the ground, they would find holes. You would look out on the very land of Egypt and you would recognize immediately something was amiss. The smell would preach it, the sight of blood would make it clear, the people scavenging for water and digging holes. It is a grand proclamation of the judgment of God upon them. He is making it loud and clear that wrath is here. And then you turn to the second plague, seven days after. Moses makes his way into Pharaoh's courts. Exodus 8, 1 through 4 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. First thing that we must note from this very explicit and actually the first time that the Lord uses this particular phrasing because he has dropped all the modifiers. Listen to what he tells Moses to say. Let my people go that they may serve me. There is no modifier any longer. It's not let them go that they may serve me in the wilderness. It's not let them go that they may hold the festival. He's dropped each and every modifier so as to communicate that the primary purpose of God in the plagues is not to have them just make their way into the wilderness for a couple of weeks. Instead, from this point forward, what you'll notice is that Yahweh is preaching over Pharaoh. You're gonna let them go and you're gonna let them go indefinitely. There will be no return they are making their way out so that they may serve me, not temporarily, but forever. That they would be the servants of God throughout all their generations. That is to say, they are released from the service of Pharaoh. They will never make their way back under it and that they will then go and serve the true and living God forevermore. From this point forward, there is no modifier. God is not conditioning the statement. He's telling Pharaoh, you're letting them go and you're letting them go for good. And in the midst of this, there is a threatening of a plague, which I would remind you is a unique grace given to Pharaoh, a kindness, if you will. Because God did not need to tell Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, this is what's going to occur. He simply could have executed the plague. And instead of this, he makes his ways known to Pharaoh. He makes it clear that if you disobey the commandment of God, then a plague will come upon you and upon all the land of Egypt. God has dropped the modifiers and God then threatens a plague. And I want us to notice just really quickly the kindness of God as we have just mentioned. It does have a unique reminiscence to Habakkuk 2 that God in his kindness is displaying a promise. He's making clear that wrath will indeed come just like he did in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 3 says this, and the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Why is God making this so clear to Pharaoh? He is giving him an opportunity. And hear me for just a moment, friends. God is expressing mercy. He is demonstrating again his character and nature. And as he is demonstrating that mercy, he gives a stark warning and essentially an indication that if you let the people of Israel go, then all of these plagues will cease. The land will be fine and you will make your way out. God has already quite clearly promised that this will not occur, but nonetheless, his mercy is still displayed. 
Because it goes on to say in Habakkuk 2, 2 through 3, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That is to say that God is mercifully displaying the consequence for their disobedience, but at the very same time, he is not saying that he will relent. It will indeed come. If you disobey, if you reject the command, of God, then God will ultimately cast judgment upon the nation and plague it specifically with frogs. Now, the interesting part of this is even in the light of God's sworn judgment, Pharaoh disregards God's threatenings. He has already demonstrated a plague that would baffle us if we saw it today that the water of the Nile in all of its parts and all of its pieces have been completely turned to blood. And the magicians simply pulled out a bowl and made a little water turn to blood. And he is so callous, so hardened of heart that even in the midst of that grand proclamation of God's power and dominion, this plague threatening, this promise that God is making does not move Pharaoh an inch. This is the callousness of this man, that he hears the promised threatenings of God, the promise of judgment, and in the midst of it, he says, I will not let the people of Israel go. The reason that we assume this, by the way, is because the plague comes. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but by the fact that the frogs do show up, it's quite clear that that Pharaoh does, again, harden his heart and refuse to let the people of Israel go. And so Pharaoh refuses, and then ultimately what we find is the plague is then executed. Let's look at the plague for just a moment. This is found in particularly in verses five through seven. And it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come upon the land of the earth, the land of Egypt. So the very first thing that we need to notice here is that Aaron raises the staff in his hand over the waters and frogs begin to swarm. And it's very important that we notice a very small yet important phrase that's beginning to make its way through this text. The promise that God makes is that the people, that the frogs will swarm, that is, express dominion over the land. That it's going to be a grand proclamation that, it, that the frogs are going to dominate as it were, the land of Egypt. This is the very same word that we find in the, in the creation ordinance that you should go into the world and then multiply and subdue it. That this is the language that we're looking at here. And so Exodus 8, 3 through 4, the Nile shall swarm with frogs. That's the same language that you'll find in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates the birds of the, the, birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea that they swarm, that they dominated the land as it were. And so he's demonstrating yet again his authority over all creation. But Exodus 8, 3 and 4, the Nile shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. So you notice this. There is not a square inch of Egypt that is frogless at this point. That every single ounce of existence, whether you are a servant or whether you are Pharaoh, that frogs are infesting each and every part of your land. This leads the psalmist in Psalm 105 to record this. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. I love this verse. It's a great verse of mockery. You can imagine all of Pharaoh's people Everyone at his command, your job right now in the midst of the second plague, don't let frogs into my palace. 
and he utterly fails, that these men are actually being destroyed and dominated. They cannot wrangle frogs, as it were. And so as you're looking at this, there's teeming upon the whole land, there's swarming, that creation language is being made known, and that they ultimately cause great destruction in the land. Psalm 78, 45, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. I think we can all safely say that we're not used to the language of frogs and destruction going hand in hand. That when we think about great destruction, we're thinking about perhaps the the hail that will come a bit later or the darkness or perhaps even the, the rivers of blood that ran throughout Egypt. And yet the psalmist looks at the frogs and says, it is by these, by these mere tiny creatures that God dominated and destroyed the land of Egypt. Now, just to describe this to you, because I think we can detach ourselves from it for a moment. There was, as it were, believe it or not, a God of the frogs, named Heket. And Heket was essentially the one who was the beginner of life. And the reason I find this so interesting is because I can imagine if I was an Egyptian and I had seen the devastation of the water of the Nile being turned to blood, the first sight of a frog actually might be a comfort to me that there's, perhaps it is that there really isn't the utter destruction that we thought of. The frogs are beginning to hop out of the Nile, a demonstration of the beginning of life yet again. And perhaps I'm sitting there with my child and telling them, ah, see, the gods have not abandoned us. And then all of a sudden, the very thing that would give me the brief moment of comfort began to swarm every ounce of my land, that the streets are filled with them. There is not a step that I can take that does not place a frog or two underfoot to hear the brief cracking of those tiny bones or even to listen to the endless, incessant croaking. You imagine the sleeping of that land, laying in bed, Frog croak after frog croak after frog croak. It's Chinese water torture. This is what's occurring in the land. They are, dever- they are devastated by this. And not only do we see it in their streets, but we see it in their homes. Imagine going to cook bread in your oven and frogs begin to leap out half scorched. And then you're beginning to mix in your bowl the bread that you will feed your family with. And as you're doing so, frogs begin to leap into it, not one, not two, but a great multitude. We think that it's a light covering of Egypt in frogs, but brothers and sisters, it's not. It's a plague. And if we're going to call it a plague, it should be severe and uniquely plaguing. And so they swarm in all of the places throughout Egypt, at first through the streets, then in the houses of servants, and finally making, the, making their way into the palace itself. Not even Pharaoh and his servants, not even Pharaoh in his high places, in the wonderful court where he demonstrates such power and authority is safe from the incessant croaking of frogs, that he himself would have been annoyed and bothered by these creatures, that his food would have been ruined by their presence. Not one square inch of Egypt would have been left unaffected. But then there is this rather simple phrase that you will find only for this plague and the one after where the magicians are mentioned. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come upon the land of Egypt. I do want you to note this. This is the last time the magicians will be able to do anything by their secret arts. In the next plague, which we'll examine more clearly next week, they simply say, this is the finger of God. But here they say, oh, we can do something about this. Now, what they do, I am convinced, is just comedy. 
Because in the midst of a plague of frogs, a multitude of frogs, so many that you literally can't even keep your bread and utensils clean, that your oven is filled with frogs, that you can't even lay on your bed without having multiple jump upon you, that in the midst of this, they summon more frogs. That in their working, instead of actually demonstrating real power, which by the way, real power would be removing them from the land, instead they say, hey, look, we can do the same thing. And in a land filled with a multiplicity of frogs, they summon a few more. Good work, guys. And can I just say, just for a moment, that we, we, we must note their ability. It is quite clear that they did summon these frogs. The Septuagint, the language there of the secret arts, actually is the word spells, that they cast spells, as it were, I would argue, by appealing to demonic forces inside of the spiritual realm. But instead, they summon these frogs. And as they summon these frogs, if I was Pharaoh, let's place ourselves in that position for a minute, I would be infuriated. Because the people that are the most powerful spiritual forces in my land, instead of doing what I would imagine Pharaoh would have had to request, which is, can you do something about the frogs? Can you at bare minimum keep them out of my palace? And instead of doing what Pharaoh says, they say, we'll demonstrate some power, we'll summon a bit more frogs. If I'm Pharaoh, I am furious. How dare you summon more frogs? All I'm asking you to do at bare minimum is keep them out of my palace. But these magicians are helpless. They're helpless before frogs. They cannot keep them out. They cannot protect Pharaoh. They can't keep the sound of the frogs from reaching Pharaoh's ears as he sleeps at night. They are weak and frail in light of the power of God amongst frogs. And so they their ability is made clear, but their inability is, as it were, shouted. And as their inability is shouted, what does Pharaoh do? This is one of the sweetest verses throughout the entirety of the Exodus account because he goes to the magicians and says, do something about this. And they say, we can bring some more frogs. And then he does this. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Do you hear that note, that sweet note in Pharaoh's voice where he has to, has to recognize that all the powers of Egypt can do nothing before mere frogs? That he's looking at his magicians and he's saying, can you even keep them out of a small section so that we can sleep well? And the answer is no. And so his only response is to recognize something that was demonstrated in the previous plague. In the previous plague, there's a very clear statement that by this you will know that I am the Lord. And Pharaoh has taken the hint. He understands by the power that was demonstrated in the blood and the Nile being turned to blood that only the true and living God can conquer the plague that he has brought upon the land. No longer is he consulting the magicians concerning this particular plague. Instead, his only response is to turn and to make his way to Yahweh, the only true and living God. And so in seeing the ineptitude of these magicians, he turns to Moses and in doing so recognizes that God alone is the one who has true power and true dominion. Now, in this, you also see a hint 
a clear indication that there is not heart change here. There's nothing really altered in Pharaoh. It's simply a desire to be relieved from the condition that he has found himself in. You notice this made most clearly in Exodus 8.8 when it says this, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. We understand and understand fully that Pharaoh has no intention of doing this. We will notice at the conclusion of this plague that his heart is hardened and he will not listen to them. But I do want you to note this. Pharaoh understands that the plagues that are coming upon the land of Egypt are coming upon the land of Egypt because of his disobedience. It's quite clear that God is executing justice and judgment on Pharaoh and thus all the land of Egypt because he is refusing to obey the voice of God. This is the reason that Pharaoh himself links the plagues with him refusing to let the people of Israel go. There is no way that we can read the plague narratives and miss the fact that Pharaoh understands exactly what's going on. He understands that he is in rebellion against the true and living God. And since he is in rebellion against the true and living God, the true and living God is executing judgment and wrath against him. Disobedience has merited the very wrath of God. And then there is a mocking, beautifully mocking text. Listen to what it says in verse nine. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me. So Moses speaking to Pharaoh says to Pharaoh, I want you, you tell me when I'm to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Why? Why would Moses in the midst of really possessing all of the power in the room, look at Pharaoh and say, hey, this is the way I read it in my redneck. All right, biggin, you tell me when to tell them to leave. And the whole premise of this is quite clear because it is essentially a loud profession that only God is the one who has the power. And God is not going to permit Pharaoh to say, oh, it was a natural occurrence. And that's the reason why the, why the plagues left. It was just, it happened to be a Tuesday. And since it happened to be a Tuesday, the frogs simply died out. It had been a week or maybe two weeks and they, their, their life has run its course. And so what God does and what Moses does in this situation is you tell me the exact time, you tell me the moment that you want me to pray for the plague to end. And in that very moment, God will demonstrate his authority, his power, and his precision to wipe the plague out. And by that, you will know that he is the Lord. Listen to what it says again in verse nine. It says this, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, which I am convinced by the way, that this is a statement of mockery back from Pharaoh. He's saying, okay, then why don't you do it tomorrow? He's essentially saying, you think you can handle this plague. If you think you can handle it, get it done by tomorrow. And Moses says, all right. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. He has demonstrated already in the first plague his power and dominion over the waters. He is demonstrating yet again that he possesses power not only to plague, but he has power to end the plague as well, demonstrating yet again that he alone is the living and true God. And so what we find in this simple motions, movements that we've made so far, that you have the profession, you will let my people go, the plagues then are executed. And as the plagues are executed, Moses and Aaron make their way back into the courtroom of Pharaoh. Pharaoh pleads, will you do something about the frogs? And God is then setting up Moses for the grand opportunity to demonstrate yet again that the only true and living God is Yahweh of the people of Israel. And then this is how the plague concludes. 
Moses intercedes and God does exactly as Moses asked. If you look very clearly at verse 11, it says this, the frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the words of Moses. Now, I just want to make a brief application of this because I believe this to be a uniquely sweet text that is that is really in contrast with what would have been occurring in the land of Egypt. Do you think that as you have been plagued by frogs, that you would not be crying out to your false gods to relieve you? That all throughout the land of Egypt, these pagans would have been crying out to their gods. And as they did so, they would have been begging for some form of relief. It reminds me, I think, really clearly of the very same thing that we find in the, in the narrative of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. First Kings 18, 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Isn't it so clear that as they're crying out to their gods, they are left without any answer, or at bare minimum, without any solution to the problem at hand. And then we find this rather simple and, and very clear juxtap juxtaposition that Moses goes out, prays to the living God, and the living God responds. The reality is that there is this proclamation that the true and living God is a personal and near God that hears the prayers of his people and responds accordingly. First Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What a unique juxtaposition it must have been in, with, in regard to Pharaoh with all of his pleadings of the gods of Egypt, with all of his pleadings of the magicians, and this little old man Moses makes his way out, prays to the living and true God, and at that very moment, the plagues cease. What a wonderful demonstration of the intimacy and the nearness of our God. How beautiful it is that he would stoop down to hear the prayers of his people so as to demonstrate his authority and his power and his dominion in all the earth. And so we see Moses intercede, which clearly demonstrates to us the sweetness of our fellowship with God and the beauty of prayer. And then we go further and we see the actual response to this. The response is this, the frogs die and pollute the land with their hideous odor. Listen to what it says in verse 13. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, the frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So first you must notice that every single one of these frogs die in an instant, that all of the croaking ceases, and that all that's left of this plague are rotting corpses throughout the entire land of Egypt. And the severity of this yet again must be understood by the fact that we are not talking about a few hundred frogs. We're talking about a land that has been covered by them. And in a moment, every single one of them dies. And then the response of the Egyptians is, we will sweep them up into heaps. That is to say, into mounds. And no matter where they were, no matter where you were in Egypt, there would have been a grand testimony of death everywhere you looked that a mountain, as it were. And so the death is clear. The stench begins to make its way throughout the land, which I can't help but imagine would be mixed again with the smell of iron from the blood and the dead and rotting fish that would have been along the Nile shore, that the whole land would have been an odor, a uniquely horrendous odor. And the reason I draw such attention to this is because the odor, the stench, is mentioned in both the first plague and the second plague, but it's not mentioned again throughout the remainder of the plagues. He's drawing attention to the reality that the land itself stinks. 
Now, in the midst of this, you have the, every single one of the frogs die. You have the stench that begins to waft essentially throughout the entirety of the land, and there are testimonies, pillars of death wherever you go. And then in conclusion to this narrative, we will look really, really quickly at Pharaoh's response to God's mercy. And we do call it a mercy. It actually indicates the fact that there was a respite. There was a moment of relief. So what naturally occurs from this? Pharaoh witnesses, without question, the mercy of God in ceasing from the plagues. There is mercy demonstrated to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt based upon the intercession of Moses. And as he intercedes, a mercy comes. And and anyone with any ounce of eyes open, able to see true things, would have said, praise be to God, the God of the Israelites. They would have rejoiced at the fact that this God is merciful and gracious and that this is a great demonstration of his kindness. And so the natural response, if you were seeing appropriately, would be to bless the name of Yahweh, to worship him and to worship him alone. But let's see what happens with Pharaoh. Then the magician said, oh, forgive me, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, saw that there was mercy, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh tasted, in the truest sense of the word, the mercy of God, and he hardened his heart against the sweetness of God's mercy. Listen to Isaiah 26.10. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. This is the nature of the wicked, that as the mercy of God is demonstrated, Unless the Spirit of God quickens and gives life to be able to taste it and to see it appropriately, that mercy will be an agent of hardening upon their very souls, that it will demonstrate all the more their wickedness. A simple application, and I do think there are plenty for this very day. Today, this very day, the general mercy of God rose upon countless men. That the fact that the sun came up this morning is a demonstration of God's mercy, God's kindness, God's patience, because there is an entire world of people that's very breath profanes the very being and character of our God. And yet God is so merciful as to let the very same sun that shines upon us shine upon them. Today, the mercy of God will come to the wicked through gospel proclamation. There will be many a wicked men who will hear the gospel today. Perhaps it is that you are here and you have rejected the call of God each and every time it has come. It is by his mercy and by his mercy alone that you sit under a proclamation of it today. But hear me, if you reject the mercy of God, then there is no life for you. Instead, it will be judgment and judgment alone. You should not take for granted the mercy of God because there will come a day of great judgment. Today, wicked men will drink water, hug their children, laugh with their wives, and all of this is the mercy of God, and they will grow to hate him even in the midst of his boundless mercy. And in, the, and in reality, God will give it to them tomorrow, most likely. The patience of God demonstrated. And you'll notice as we make our way through the plague, God will eventually just say, I could have wiped you off the face of the earth already. And I've demonstrated over and over again, I've shown my power, my dominion, my authority, my mercy, and you have hated me each and every step of the way. So there's this clear application for this very day that God's mercy is being displayed in the midst of this. The respite that comes is a demonstration of his mercy and that mercy should soften the heart of Pharaoh. But he, as this text so loudly says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Now, in the narrative, all of that is shouting, release my people, let my people go. But there is something else that's taking place in this. It is not just the frogs, but instead we need to ask the question, why? Why frogs? And I want to give you just a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is really long, but it's really fun. So first, 
God is claiming dominion over the creatures of the waters. Genesis 1.20, yet again, we see that God forms the waters of the earth in Genesis 1, but we also see that God forms the creatures of the waters that swarm. This false god, Heket, has absolute no authority over the frogs so long as God is involved. God is the one who possesses and actually does uh, dominate and express sovereignty over them. And so in Genesis 1.20, that statement, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creature and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. He's essentially saying that not only do I possess dominion over the waters itself, I possess dominions over every single creature that lives in those waters. That the fish that died, my fish, the frogs that made their way out to dominate your land, as it were, every single one of those belong to me. They're under my authority. And I can make one of the most, one of the most people-averse amphibians on the planet swarm a whole city. And that's exactly what he does, demonstrating yet again his authority and his power and his dominion and actually possessing all authority in all areas of creation. Secondly, because frogs will demonstrate how easily Egypt is conquered by the Almighty. God's power displayed is the simple way to say this. God doesn't need lions and he doesn't need armies to conquer nations. He can use frogs and they'll do just fine. The concept of this is to embarrass thoroughly Pharaoh. You can imagine Egypt is not a really isolated nation in this sense. Wars would have come and gone for generations. Pharaoh would have won a multiplicity of wars and battles, and he is losing against amphibians. He is failing altogether to not only protect his land, his people, his servants, he can't even keep his palace safe. And so Pharaoh then is thoroughly embarrassed as his palace is sieged by creatures children can normally handle. And so it's assaulted. And then a simple application of this, and I think a rather clear one is, frogs don't conquer kingdoms, friends. I mean, just a simple phrase, Frogs don't conquer kingdoms. And yet what we find is that the Almighty has decreed that Egypt would be conquered and laid waste to by frogs. And I just want to play this out because I think this is a general way that God likes to demonstrate his power all throughout not only redemptive history inside of, the, inside of kingdoms and all of that, but also in the very essence of the Christian life, God loves to humiliate his enemies by weak and frail people. The idea that frogs don't conquer kingdoms is one that is quite, is quite easily given. But the reality is Christians don't win wars against cosmic powers. And yet we have verses like Ephesians 6.12 that says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you know where we find this? We find this in Ephesians 6, where the next verse will go on to tell us, make war against them. Not only should we make war against them, the reality is that the Christian will be triumphant on the last day in the midst of this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 tells us this, don't flee from them, don't run from them, don't cower before them. Instead, gird up. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Brothers and sisters, men don't win battles with spiritual forces unless the Almighty God says, go to war with this armor. He is the one who empowers the Christian life. He is the one who makes the impossible possible. The only reason that we are able to stand before any, any, the most minute spiritual force on the planet is because God has decreed that his people will stand, that the very gates of hell will not prevail against mere men as the gospel is preached, as the spirit empowers and gives life, that the very gates of hell and hell itself will be sieged by the people of God. Further, men don't win wars against sin. Do you remember warring against sin in your carnal state? I remember periods of my life, oftentimes after church camps, where I would say, I can do this. 
I can win this. I can put to death this sin that I love so dearly. And I was met with absolute failure each and every time. And then the most miraculous thing happens. I'm born again. The spirit of God enters into my soul. My affections are changed and altered. And I am right to confess men don't win wars with sin. But the scripture actually makes it abundantly clear in Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're right. Men don't win wars with sin unless the spirit works and wills within us to see it conquered. We're right to look at the frogs and say, there's no way they conquer palaces. There's no way men stand before spiritual forces. There's no way that we can put to death sin, this great and evil thing that caused the fall of both angels and men. How can we war against this? Because the Spirit of God has made it so. And perhaps a, another clear one, death can't bring del deliverance from death. I mean, imagine the folly of this. I'm going to defeat death by death. And the entire proclamation of the New Testament is that Jesus conquered death by death. You're right to say death can't bring deliverance from death unless it is the true God, true man who dies. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death, that great enemy, that thing that has to be conquered, that thing that has captured every single soul from the beginning of creation to this very day, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the, de that is the devil, and deliver all those who, th who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are right to look at so many scenarios in the Christian life and say, that doesn't happen. But we must always be reminded of the clear testimony of Scripture that simply says, unless it is by God Almighty's decree. And so we see the demonstration of God's authority, his mocking, his destruction of Pharaoh. And then... Thirdly, because it shows forth the uncleanness of Egypt, and this is really where I want to spend most of our time. The, the, the big short of this is, I think, simply, you get the uncleanness imagery the moment you begin to think about swarming frogs upon the face of the land. Because you think about, perhaps, your bed being filled with frogs, that it, it, your bedroom, the place where you sleep, has been profaned. Or then you go further and you think about the utensils that you actually do everything in your power to keep clean because you know you're going to eat off of them or prepare the food that your children will eat. You do everything you can to keep that clean. And yet even then explicitly stated by Moses that these frogs have profaned that very thing. The palace and the temples, the, these places of worship, these places of high honor, these have been corrupted and corrupted all together. And that's one reason that I would make an argument for that. But I would not think that that's substantial enough reason for me to make the argument that frogs are a demonstration or a proclamation over the land of Egypt that they are unclean. The real reason that we would make this argument is because of Revelation 15 and 16. And I would invite you to go ahead and turn there. And the reason I would is because if we understand Revelation 15 and 16, I'm convinced that you cannot get away from the fact that what is actually taking place by the pouring out of the bowls is a echo, if you will, of the plagues. So first, starting in verse 15, uh, Revelation 51, I'm going to make my case and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll deal with the final point here in a moment. So the section is marked with plagues. If you look at Revelation 15:1, you'll notice this phrase, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So you see this demonstration, plain and clear, that plagues are what are in view that he's making clear that plagues will be coming and this is what is going to be demonstrated. And then as you enter Revelation 15, 3, you'll notice that Moses then is mentioned. And they sang the song of Moses. Moses. 
the servant of God and the song of the lamb. Revelation 15.3 again brings Moses into view. Right after you have the, the proclamation of plagues, it seems rather clear that there's a motif that we're working through. The plagues are going to come. The wrath of God is being demonstrated by the plagues. And then instantly you have the pronouncement of Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ being present in the midst of these. And then you find this. The first plague is sores on the body. Revelation 16.2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth with and harmful and painful sores come upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. It is not a far stretch, actually. It's not a stretch at all to say that we are looking at essentially a plague of boils, the very same plague that you would find a bit later on in the 10 plagues. And so the people themselves are marked uniquely by boils coming up all over their bodies that cause them great discomfort and pain. And then Revelation 16, 4 through 7, the second and third plague, this is what the text says. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just as just, just you are, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So not only do we have in the first plague, or the, forgive me, not only do we have in the second plague, the water turning to blood, the third plague as well continues that and essentially turns all of the water into the, in the land to blood. The fourth plague then, Revelation 16, eight through nine, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth plague, again, an echo, if you will, darkness, unique darkness. Revelation 16.10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Six, the drying up of the river Euphrates. Revelation 16.12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The seventh plague then, in conclusion and crescendo, says this, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. You notice the echo that you have the plagues mentioned. Moses is then brought into view. You have the waters being turned to blood. You have darkness. You have boils. And in the midst of all of this, the conclusion is the hailstones that would have been mentioned a little bit later on in the eighth plague that all of these are echoing the wrath of God being demonstrated, which then I think rightly would ask the question, well, why then would this have anything to do with frogs? Frogs are not mentioned in this passage, except for the fact that they are. Revelation 16, 13 through 14 says this, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, this is as the river Euphrates is dried up, this comes out. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The only time in the New Testament the words frogs is used. 
And it's right smack dab in the middle of an echo of all of the plagues of Egypt, a demonstration of God's wrath where the people, as they are experiencing and seeing the wrath of God, do not repent or give him glory. Instead, this creature comes out and out of his mouth flow three unclean spirits that go then to gather all of the unclean kings. And these spirits are, de- are described as like frogs. A.W. Pink, I think, beautifully says it this way. Frogs are used to symbolize the power of evil and stand for uncleanness. The turning of the waters into blood was a solemn reminder of the wages of sin. The the issuing forth of the frogs made manifest the character of the devil's works, uncleanness. There is a loud proclamation over the entirety of Egypt. This land is unclean. It is filthy. It is flooded with sin and wickedness. And the proclamation that's made here actually does give us a lot to glean from. Because if we're to ask the question, or perhaps you would presume with me that as we're looking at that, it's right to assume that the frogs then are meant to display the uncleanness of the land, both literally in the touch, in the taste, in the sounds, in the smells of the land, and then in a more clear way as we take in the full light of the New Testament. And so if we interpret it in light of that, if we interpret the concept of the frogs being a demonstration of the uncleanness of the land, I think this text preaches rather loudly to us. First, it shows that Egypt was unclean from the greatest to the least. Exodus 8, 4, the frogs shall come up on you and on your people, on all your servants. It is uniquely expressive as it's making clear that there is not a single soul in Egypt. Pharaoh will not be exempt. The handmaiden will not be exempt. The servants of the land are just as polluted as the king of the land. It is a demonstration that every single individual from the greatest to the least is unclean within the land. And then going further, it shows the all-encompassing nature of their uncleanness. Exodus 8, 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs. They shall come into your houses, into your bedrooms, on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. There is not a square inch of Egyptian life that is not corrupted by sin and iniquity. The whole of it is unclean clean. They make their bread to false gods. As they go into their bedroom, they are worshiping false gods. The whole land is polluted with sin and death and iniquity. And God is simply making it clear by the second plague. Further, it shows the inescapable nature of their uncleanness. Notice again, very clearly, the magicians cannot do anything about the frogs. You would imagine that all of the people of Egypt would have begged and pleaded these powerful people in the land, can you please help us? And yet they are met only with more frogs. A grand demonstration yet again that flesh can only give birth to flesh. There is no way for that which is unclean to clean the unclean. There is no possible way that sin can clean sin. There's no way that idolatry does not lead to deeper idolatry. It is so explicit that there is no escape from the uncleanness of this land. But it not only demonstrates the all-encompassing nature of uncleanness, the demonstration that it's from the highest power to the lowest, that it's from the most public sphere to the most private, but it also demonstrates the end of their uncleanness. As Moses goes out and prays, we must pay close attention to the reminder of the devastation. The end of their uncleanness is this, Exodus 8.13. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. Yet another proclamation, even in relief and respite, there is a proclamation that uncleanness leads to 
death. And death is, as it were, going forward into Exodus 8.14, is a stench. It is a demonstration that the whole land is unclean. Exodus 8.14, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. The first and second plagues shout to all the people of Egypt, to Israel, and to us in our present day, that everything in that land was unclean and wicked. The world itself, if we take it in the full light, is filled with uncleanness, sin, and death, and it is a stench in the nostrils of our God. It is a wicked and heinous thing. And that does lead us appropriately to ask, what then can be done? How then can we find any relief? Because brothers and sisters, the real source of their uncleanness is not first and foremost in their idolatry. It's in the love of their sin that led them to deeper idolatry. The source of uncleanness is sin that leads to death. And in the midst of all of this, it's a grand proclamation over all of the people of Egypt and to this very day that the wages of sin is death. It is corruption and it is a stench in the nostrils of our God. And thus we ask, what then can we do? What hope is there for one who is unclean? And does that not lead us directly into the book of Leviticus? If you were to ask the question, where would I go to find out how to be clean before the Lord? If you find yourself a first temple Jew and you ask that question, every single individual would know, turn to the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus will proclaim to you that there are multiple ways that you can be ceremonially clean. I mean, let's just give a couple. There are laws and washings and sacrifices instituted in the Torah for ceremonial cleansing. The whole indication is I'm going to go do these things and it'll be for the purification of the flesh. I'll make myself a bit more clean before God based upon the laws that he's instituted. And these laws do teach us how, how easily to become ceremonially clean. It's a demonstration that you can go and you can be made ceremonially clean. But the washings show us our constant need of cleansing. It is interesting, isn't it? That they have to be washed over and over and over and over again. That the priest couldn't even go into the tabernacle until they went to, the, to, to, to wash themselves before they made their way in. There was something they had to do even before they could enter into the presence of God. And they had to do it every time. Every single time before they made their way in, a demonstration, as it were, that as they walked out of that place, before they walked back in, they needed to be cleansed again. Why? Because they were unclean. Because they were playing with sin and death, as it were. The sacrifices show us the severity and penalty of our uncleanness before God. Do they not? The fact that the sacrifices have to be made year after year. And not only year after year, we, we think about the Day of Atonement, and rightly so, but brothers and sisters, sacrifices were made each and every day. There was blood filling the temple and the tabernacle each and every day. There were lambs being slaughtered to the side, proclaiming that there is, we are in desperate need of blood shed for us. We're in desperate need to be made clean. We must make sacrifices. Before I can go into the temple, I must go through various washings. I must demonstrate yet again that even in the midst of my uncleanness, I have a longing to be at least ceremonially unclean. But the reality is that even in Leviticus, there is a proclamation there is no complete cleanness in the Levitical law or in the sacrifices or in the washings. The fact that they must be repeated over and over and over again shout, these don't clean well enough. And then we must answer the question in its fullest light, how then can we be clean? Because Leviticus actually ends with the very same question. If it's on repeat, if it must always be occurring, that I'm 
always going back and forth from ceremonially unclean to then ceremonially clean. But what I really want is not just purification of the flesh. I don't want just to not hear the sounds of the frogs. I don't want to be unclean. I want to be made right, not just in the flesh, but in the whole man. I want to be made clean. And then we have a beautiful, simple, perfect verse in the pages of the New Testament that will shout to us the only means of cleansing. Matthew 8, 1 through 3. Mind you, this is after Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, where he has told everyone, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you don't get to go to heaven. You can't participate in the kingdom. He's laid out the firmest, most explicit, most precise law ever laid out. And he comes down from that and he does this. Matthew 8, 1 through 3. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper, one who would not even be permitted to be inside the camp of Israel. He would have had to take himself out. He would have had to prove that he was not leprous for an extended period of time. And mind you, if he touched anyone, they would have become completely unclean. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. This man never had to wash again. He never had to see sacrifices again. He never had to go back to the Levitical order. Instead, there was a proclamation over him that you are not just ceremonially clean. You are clean top to bottom. We find this echoed when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We see it throughout his ministry. He is proclaiming that the Levitical priesthood that is in stark contrast to the frogs that plagued the land of Egypt, this idea, this concept of how can I be ceremonially clean is finally answered in the Messiah's arrival. And when he arrives, he does not make us ceremonially clean. He makes us clean unmodified. Listen to what the text says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more, perf- more, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to what? Serve, to administer ministry inside of the temple of God, to serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, there is a great indictment, not only in Egypt, but in all the world, this whole world unclean until the Lord Jesus Christ reaches out and touches it. And the moment that he does, we are cleaned in every sent in every form of the word. The unclean shall drink the cup of the fury of God's wrath. Their stench shall go up forever and ever. And every single one of us should have been heaped up like the rotting frogs of Egypt. But for the grace of God, the blood of the lamb and the washing of the spirit, instead we were washed, we were made clean, we are made alive to the service of our God. And we then are not a stench of death, but a fragrant aroma of praise unto our God now and forevermore. Let's pray together.